certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Despite examining thousands of women, the doctor who treated a 17-year-old girl brutally raped by Bradley Edwards 25 years ago today told why this assault was one that had stuck in her mind. Welcome to Claremont in Conversation. As the trial enters week six, I'm Natalie Bongiolo with criminal defence lawyer Damien Cripps and legal affairs editor Tim Clark. And before we talk about the evidence presented today, we would just like to warn listeners that some of what was discussed is distressing. Um, Tim, can you tell us about the doctor who treated the Karakata rape victim? Yes, Matt. Hi, this is... um Dr. Amanda Barnard, she worked for something called the SARC, which is the Sexual Assault Resources Centre based here in Perth. They were a service that was offered to, and still is offered to, sex assault victims in Perth that gave them obviously some counselling, but also uh, they had medical practitioners on staff that examined victims um, for several purposes, obviously to check them over medically, but also to take forensic samples from sex assault victims in a in a in a consistent and sterile manner um, for use going forward in any possible criminal prosecution. <clears throat> and this was the case in 1995 when this young girl, who was just 17 at the time, reported the assault in Karakata Cemetery. And why did this assault stick out in Dr. Barnard's mind? Well, as, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, Dr. Barnard was also a, a, a medical doctor. So this wasn't just her only role. So she said she'd intimately examined thousands of women over, the, over her long career. But this did still stick in her mind so long after for various reasons. She said that the violence attached to the uh, the attack. We know that the young lady was... Um, attacked from behind, she was hooded, she was gagged, she was tied up, she was placed in a van. She said the the, the, the youth of the victim, she was only 17, um, the, the wounds that she saw stuck in her mind, particularly because of the restraints that were used on ankles and wrists. She said she remembered that definitely. She thought at the time that this young girl had been restrained in the manner that she described and also the fact that this was this young girl's um, horribly, tragically, this was her first sexual experience. She was a virgin before this happened on this night. So, for all those um, factors, um, she said that this was a uh, this was an, an attack that particularly stuck out in her mind then and still does today. And I guess sometimes, um, I don't know, Damien, if you've got much experience with these kinds of cases, but um, would it be more often the case that the victim would be known to the perpetrator, perhaps? Well, it's difficult to say, and I feel like I'm always answering my questions in that manner, but I would have thought in a case like the one that Dr Barnard was giving evidence about, um, the... There's, well, there's a couple of points that Tim just raised then that wouldn't have been known to the perpetrator, whoever it was. And I know that um, Mr. Edwards has pled guilty to it and mm-hmm. accepted the responsibility. But um, the fact that, um, well, I would have thought, I don't know for certain, but I would have thought the fact that she hadn't um, had any sexual involvement 
previously wouldn't have been something that um, he might have or might not have known. Um, and this is this goes back to a lot of people uh, interested in the concept of why he had pled guilty to this mm. charge. And when we see this kind of thing com- coming up, um, Tim and Natalie, this is particularly why that question keeps coming up because he paved the way for this material to come in potentially and this very detailed picture of a very violent incident that took place previously now becomes part of something that he's accepted responsibility for. Um, I don't think that it's something that um, in, 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 a, in the case that's ongoing given all of our prior discussions about the significant mind of the person who's at the helm of the ship, if I could put it that way, that this kind of material will have the same impact it would have on listeners or people in the public gallery at the trial because I think the justice in this case um, would have heard thousands of cases that would be similar and, and had similar content that that does. So he would be very well set up to put that into the right place in his mind when making a decision about what's going on with the, the cases before him. And if if the, the case was that, because I don't know the specific case, if the case was that um, Mr Edwards knew this person, the subject of this attack, um, there would have been elements that he didn't know about her. I, I would have thought. Mm. Um, why, I guess, could these details be important to the case, given that, as you've just said, Bradley Edwards has pleaded guilty to this? So... You know why? Why is this being discussed in such great detail? Apart from, I guess, you know, the DNA and the forensic side of things. Well, the interesting thing there is, and this would be uh, an interesting thing for the listeners to do in their own mind. When you hear those words that were, um, or you hear the definitions that were put forward by um, Dr. Barnard today, that Tim's um, been kind enough to recount for us. What does that make the listener think? So when the listener thinks, listens to that, you know, consider themselves as a jury, they hear what um, was put before the court. And what does that do to their opinion of his guilt or otherwise? And my initial thought would be that one of the really, really poignant things that comes out of that is that it's a violent assault on a stranger that in- involves some fairly significant hooded restrained you know they're not just normal i've lost control and i'm angry or they're 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 sort of somewhat calculated i would have thought and and if you put that into a forum where people can consider that against what's being alleged it's almost a waterfall effect of like oh my goodness this is but that's what i'm saying about the the great thing about having a mind like we do at the helm of the ship in justice hall He's got the capacity, I believe, such is my opinion, he's got the capacity to be able to put that in the right place rather than letting a waterfall cascade effect happen because those words, and Tim, you were there, but I would have thought those words are emotional. They pull on parents and family members. You know, when you hear those kind of words and you think about someone you love having something like that done to them, it pulls pretty hard on the heartstrings. Yeah, absolutely, Amy. I mean, you would know, I've said it, many times before during this trial already it's never easy to hear that um stuff but it, it is it is you know legally 
necessary. Um, and to go to Nat's question, there will be the question of propensity as well, which will be raised later on in the trial and has already been raised by the prosecution. And they will say, well, look at this attack, which this Mr. Edwards is now pleaded guilty to, and then look at what we're alleging, and then you look at all, all the possible, you know, parallel lines between a, a young girl coming home from the Claremont night uh, entertainment district at night, had a drink, vulnerable, alone, and then she's taken for a sexual purpose, you know, from the street and attacked. And, and they will say, well, look at the similarities, and there are many. So there's that. And then, as you say, that most significant or maybe equal significance is the is the DNA taken from the victim at the time that Dr. Barnard recounted today she she took those swabs she put them in the pots she put them in the sterilized bags and she gave them to a police officer to go and put them into exhibits and they will become important because it was it were it, it they match so the prosecution say that those DNA exhibits taken from that victim match um, the DNA on Kira um, from the prosecution side, but the defence say those exhibits, both of them were in the same lab at the same time, which is where the possibility of contamination comes from, which is at the very, very heart of the prosecution case and the defence case. Uh, absolutely, Tim. And so just it's it was really effective how you drew us to the heart of the issue from um, the, the issue about the Karakata um, information. And, and what I thought would be quite useful um, for people playing this out in their mind is that, and sorry to use you as my... Um, test dummy, Tim, if I can. But if I said to you, you know, you you heard the evidence of um, Dr. Amanda Barnard today and and you you took it on board and you accepted it all, so you you took it on face value and you said she was a credible witness and you accepted Mm. it all, does that mean that Mr... Is it direct evidence that Mr. Mr. Edwards committed these three murders? Well, no. I mean, you you, you, you cannot... That's right, that. and, and so you, I mean, you cannot take that as direct evidence. No, so you people have to be that. that. That's the and that's the starting point to, to to start to unpack that. You know, when it pulls on your emotional heartstrings and you think about oh, that's he did that and that's terrible. It doesn't unequivocally put him as committing these other three murders. But the way that that process will be unpacked by the judiciary has a whole bunch of rules and um, the way that is in the way that that can be attributed to whatever the judge the justice determines that it can be attributed to so it's important for people to remember that this is just one tiny little element in a whole bunch of information that this this human has to put before themselves and make a decision about but as you pointed out to him and, and we discussed that those the words that are used in these kind of things affect people people are, you know they it's violent assault it's hooded and restrained and they're, they're, they're um, emotional words. Mm. How, how would the defence um, be dealing with this sort of information today? What would they be looking to do with it, if anything? Well, obviously I'm not involved in that case and I'm not running it. And But my first thought would be that there would have been a lot of forethought that went into this. And they, obviously, as we've discussed before, they would have had um, information about this evidence well in advance. 
So they would have had an opportunity to consider at length how they were going to deal with it in the context of what Tim was talking about, the propensity evidence. So what submissions Mr Jovic might make in relation to what legal submissions he might make to Justice Hall in relation to how Justice Hall might appropriately deal with that propensity evidence. I'm not specifically sure um, what those submissions might be. They'd be lengthy. I would have thought they would take up some time and there would have been a lot of thought and research gone into them. Um, So I would have thought that would be the first thing that the defence would be looking to do is to deal with, to, to try to argue to what extent it can be considered in the context of the whole case. Um, but I, And Tim, I, I'm not sure you were there today. I'm not sure that there's much beyond that that you could do because he's pled guilty to it. Yeah. And this is a person coming along and saying, well, this is what I recall about it. I, I'm not sure how... You, uh, I mean, you could certainly object to certain things that they were saying if you thought that they weren't relevant. But um, you, you were there, Tim. Perhaps you can help us. Yeah. Was there... Objections um, to anything yeah. that she was saying? In terms, in terms of the emotional impact of what that um, evidence um, uh, induced or adduced today, the defence questioning of Dr Barnard didn't go there at all because uh, you would have thought, well, it, it didn't need to because he's pleaded guilty to that. So there's no argument that though, all, all, all those injuries were inflicted yes they were there were avatars placed on the courtroom screens of where those injuries were um and we don't need to argue about who inflicted them because we know Mm. mr edwards did but what their questioning did go to was her collection of samples how they were labeled how they were sealed how they were handled how they were um documented and how they were handed over um because that is at the heart of where the defence want to go, which is continuity of evidence, possible forensic breakdowns in process to try and build a picture of possible flaws which could have led to one of those samples, which we know is Mr Edwards, somehow coming into contact with a sample that was yet to be taken because it, uh, Miss Glennon's body was only discovered in 1997. So uh, that's where they would, that, that's where the, all their questioning was, was focused on because that's all they needed to focus on. Prosecution, on the other hand, they, they had several irons in the fire today. There will be a sentencing of Mr. Edwards for the Karakata rape down the track at some point and... Um, Justice Hall might well take into will, will have to take into account the injuries that were caused and the emotional distress that was caused, which we've already heard from, because um, the Karakata victims' various statements have already been read out. There was that. There was a, there was process of of them trying to prove that those forensic processes were were solid, um, and also there will be some propensity argument in 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 the months to come. So. Um, so that's that, that. That's where the questioning went today, um, and it didn't go didn't, didn't go for too long. But it was it was it was as thorough as it needed to be on on both sides. So did Dr. Barnard explain uh, what happened once she'd taken the samples? Did she put them in sealed bags, and where did they go to next? Yes, exactly that. Matt. So she described how um, uh, the process of actually taking those samples was done. Um, where they were put, they were basically placed in sealed, 
plastic um, containers which were then placed inside bags which were labelled clearly and documented um, and there was also some clothing taken as well that we, we've heard about last week that was also um, bagged up and then it was given to a specialist um, sexual assault police officer who was who was the next witness to follow um, a, a police officer called Teresa Curtis who then um, t- took all those exhibits or all those samples and transferred them first to a locked um, exhibits room in police headquarters because it was a Sunday when this occurred and then the following day took them to the laboratory where they were to be kept and and, and processed and, and dealt with down the track. So um, I've said in the paper tomorrow it's, it was a, the very, very first steps on this DNA pathway that were going to be taken on by both sides uh, in the next in the next months to come uh, in how those exhibits were um, ex- you know how they were created uh, how where they came from originally all the way through to where they were stored at path west and if there was any possible way that they could have possibly come into contact with um, the uh, fingernail scrapings and, and detritus that was taken from kira's body in 97 and stored in the same lab and tim did Teresa Curtis um, shed any light on how those shorts that we previously talked about uh, were missing in that system for eight months? Yeah, yeah, she, she did. Um, there was some there was some detailing of, of uh, again of how this property tracking system worked and how people uh, were, were supposed to log stuff in when, when they first arrived and logged it out when when they when they took it. Um, Again, she she couldn't be absolutely certain because of length of time since uh, since since that occurrence, the amount of exhibits she dealt with before and since. So she 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 couldn't be precise, but she did shed some more light on the on the overall process that surrounded it. Damien, I wonder how important that can be. You know, when you do have these little gaps in the timeline where you know a, a really crucial piece of evidence is sort of missing in action for several months and people keep asking me well you know is that really critical does that buy into the whole you know beyond reasonable doubt situation absolutely i was when tim was talking through just then um the, the one of the issues is the fibers and whether they were stored and what happened to them when they were stored is there any possibility that um at some point miss glennon's the scrapings from under Miss Glennon's f- fingernails had um, come into contact with them such that, that they could be cross-contaminated. Mm. I think the question's probably even more open-ended than that. Yeah. The question is probably, can could they have been exposed to anything which could have also been exposed to Kiara Glennon's fingernail scrapings? And I, I understand yeah. that's quite... Um, expansive but that's the problem with it is that we don't know what the definitive answer is the question is does it does it create a reasonable doubt well if there's a space in time i mean that's an issue i don't know whether it's a reasonable doubt i'm not going to be the judge of that but it's an issue yeah and and, i mean the circuitous route that particularly the the macro task force exhibits and particularly the, the crucial ones, these fingernails, hair samples, the places they've been and the distance they've travelled. I mean, it's not just a case of them having come from Wellard or Eglinton 
gone to Path West and then been dealt with in a in a in a beautifully sealed bubble. They've gone to New Zealand. They've gone to the UK. Some of them, some of the hair samples have gone to America. Uh, um, it, the 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 pathway of all these samples, and we're talking about tiny, microscopic. What Damien will know very better than me, trace DNA. So this is not a big splodge that you can you, you can see with your naked eye. This is tiny, tiny amounts of DNA that were under Kira's fingernail, which is already broken down to the quick. And, and it had to go to Britain because they were the at the time they were the only ones that had the technology to be able to test these tiny, tiny pieces of DNA. You, you, you're talking about a single fibre on those shorts, yeah. one single blue fibre, and and those shorts had, had had been handled. They'd been handled by various people, and uh, so all these, and then all the possible sources that could have that could, that, that could have placed this fibre on those shorts and all the other fibres as well in the hair, people who, who touched them, come into contact with the bodies, body bags, all those type of things. It's a, it's a, and then all, and all the time that surrounds it, more than 20 years. I mean, it's a vast undertaking to try and prove that everything was done properly at every step, but that's what the prosecution has to do. Um, one of the great quotes that I can take from Tim and I will take it from him, I'll literally take it, and I'll run it somewhere, is that, and I've never heard it before, Tim, I think that I heard you say that it's worth repeating that um, the threshold for the defence is quite low in that they've just got to just show a reasonable doubt, somehow make the, the judiciary aware that there's a reasonable doubt. And then you said, Tim, I think you said that, but on the other hand, the prosecution have got a much higher threshold to get. They've got to prove beyond that reasonable doubt. And and I agreed with that when you said that. I thought that was a really good explanation because there is a significant, I think as well, gap between a reasonable doubt and beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. Yeah, I, I, yeah, there is there is definitely a step you've got to take. You've got to go literally go beyond it. Um, and it's that's what prosecutors are, are paid to do is to, is to is to compile all this evidence. As to such a standard that I, you, you're right, Damien. I probably went too far when I say he's going to be absolutely certain. But you've, the bar is 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 very high. It's it's it, you know deliberately high, and it should be high because in this case it definitely should be high because there can be no um, graver accusation that's been made to Mr. Edwards by the prosecution, and they should be put to the, the highest standard to, to prove it. Yeah, and Tim, one of the things that we might not have covered through the course of the podcast, which is worth um, raising as a reference point, is a lot of the times I know when I'm talking about a reasonable doubt or I'm um, listening to a judge or a magistrate discuss a reasonable doubt, one of the things that they will sometimes use as a reference point to the jury is that in a civil matter, the, the, the threshold is much lower and that is on the balance of probabilities. Mm. So they don't really explain what that means either. They will say that in a civil matter, you'll only have to prove something on the balance of probabilities, whereas in a criminal matter, it has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And the point that can be taken from that is whatever the distance between the two is, there is a distance. And so, yeah, big one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it might even be worth, um, just while we're talking about this particular 
a Karakata rape situation, and it's something we've touched on in a previous podcast, but it's quite relevant today, um, we're still getting quite a lot of listener questions about why he pleaded guilty to this just before the trial started. Can we go back to that for a minute, Damien, and um, have a chat again about why that could have been the case? Of course, and what I'll just do right on that moment is just have two seconds of silence for all the listeners around the world and around the state and around the country to answer it in their own mind. And I'm not being facetious. I'm simply saying why there can be only one reason. It's not about strategy. Legally, there can only be one reason why someone pleads guilty. And I appreciate that people are considering the concept of whether it was a part of a strategy, but even if it is part of a strategy, once you stand up to the line and you say, I'm guilty of this, you're accepting responsibility for what's been alleged. You're accepting responsibility in the full concept of the context of the charge. So um, if it, my answer to the question is, it has to be the reason why someone pleads guilty to something is because they did what they is alleged and they accept that they did what is alleged. Um, I don't, don't think it can be any more complex than that. And certainly Justice Hall uh, won't r- read any more into that than exactly what Damien said. You've, you've put your hand up, you admit it, um, and you, you say, yes, that I, that I am that person. And I understand why the question is keeps coming up, certainly on podcasts and certainly speaking to people around the place as well. A lot of people have said, why would he have done that? I mean, I'm not a mind reader. And it's sort of a bit spurious to speculate, really, um, because where does the speculation get to? Well, it... it, it, it it doesn't give Mr. Edwards the credit that he, he, he probably should get for admitting that, well, uh, uh, which will probably annoy some people hearing that he should get any credit. But uh, in law, a guilty plea does get you some credit, and credit no matter how late it comes. And so uh, it, it is what it is. I mean, that, that, I'm sure that speculation will continue long through the trial and probably long after as well. But well, the, the simple answer is we'll never know, no. apart from that he... That he, that he that he put his hand up and said, yes, it was me. Well, one thing we do know for certain is that he has the ability to plead guilty. Yeah. We, we can't, there's no way around that. We know that this man can accept responsibility. Uh, Tim, also taking the stand today was another member of the forensic team who I think was mentioned in the podcast last week, Barry Mott. Mm. What was his role and in relationship to which scenes? Yes, so um, he was another senior forensic officer that worked under Rob Amlar, um, who we heard, heard a lot about last week. Um, he had various roles at the Jane Rimmer crime scene. He was he took the role of photographer and, and uh, photographed the scene um, in, in very tight space, as we've heard before. Jane's body was in a little alcove copse of... of thick bush just off Wellard Road and he was the person that, that was tasked with taking the, the photographs there and then uh, eight months later um, when Kira's body was discovered, he was part of the team that again was uh, tasked to go there and on that occasion he collected mostly collected insect 
um, evidence and exhibits, potential exhibits from Kira's body, um, and, and and did that in close association with Rob Hamilar, the forensic pathologist, Dr. Margolius, and the rest of his team. So, yeah, he was integral to that, which was why today he was uh, integral to the evidence and will be tomorrow because we didn't get to his cross-examination which will be interesting I think given that he was taking exhibits and probably most crucial I didn't mention earlier he was the person who took the lock of Kira's hair that became exhibit RH17 which we already know the prosecution alleged contained several of these blue fibres and we know from last week that 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 taking of that exhibit wasn't captured on the video that um, was taken at Kira's crime scene as well. So I would expect and anticipate um, some s- series of questions about that hair sample that was taken tomorrow, given that it will become quite integral to the fibre part of the evidence that the prosecution put up. Given that that particular collection of the sample wasn't in the video footage, did he recall it being taken at the time? He did. He did. He did remember taking it. He he had to have his memory jogged, as many many witnesses have and will have, because of the tyranny of time that we've talked about twenty twenty three odd years ago. But it was there. The timing was there on the. Uh, the exhibit log when it was taken which matched up with the little portion of the video that wasn't shown basically skipped over that those three minutes which is obviously unfortunate for all concerned because in an ideal world you'd want all that video to just run and run and run and see be be able to see everything clearly but he did remember taking it when when his memory was jogged but he wasn't really questioned on it uh, um, over and over today but I think he will be questioned about it um, over and over tomorrow. Yeah. Was he questioned about any possible cross-contaminations or anything like that yet? Not in uh, not, not in so many words but he was asked whether there was any possibility he could have touched Jane's body for instance mm-hmm. and he did say in his evidence in chief that there was a possibility that he might have brushed her body when he was taking photographs given the confined space that they were all trying to work in but didn't 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 say in particular that he remembered that he had but he certainly admitted that he could have or may have um and in, in terms of jane um in terms of kira my apologies he was basically asked again about the process about how he how he would have stored certainly this uh, the insect activity some of that was stored in alcohol in these jars to make, you know preserve it so it was it was the, the question was process driven but it didn't take him to any specific issues that's obviously for the defence yes. and that will come tomorrow and given how rigorous um, the cross examination was of all this information last week we can expect that he will be um, you know quite heavily questioned tomorrow. Well, you can always get a sense in that in court. We were getting towards the end of the day when Mr. Mott was finished, about 4 o'clock when his evidence-in-chief finished. We'd been finishing around 4.15, maybe 4.30 on a late sitting day. The Justice Hall said, I take it you don't want to start your cross-examination now, Mr. Yovich. Mr. Yovich said quite, quite a quick no, which would 
it indicate obviously that the question is going to be a lot longer than 15 or 30 minutes so yes he'll be he'll be back on the stand tomorrow and um yeah I'm, i would i would imagine he might be there for a while yeah um well just before we leave we do have a question for you damien from uh, Josh Halliday, who has asked, it was mentioned in the Death Lilies episode that the defence would have to provide the prosecution with the report they intend to use to refute fibre evidence. I thought the defence wasn't required to provide anything to the prosecution at all. Um, good question, Josh, especially given the circumstances. The short of it is, it remains the position that the defence isn't required to prove anything ever, but they do have a duty um, to disclose any expert material that they propose to rely on and and the reason that is is so that the prosecution has time to have their experts um, consider the defence experts opinion so it's sort of almost a courtesy to the two um, experts for them to be able to consider what they're going to say in response to each other Um, so thanks for the question Josh it's a good one Well, thank you both for your time and expertise today and for anyone who may be affected by the contents in tonight's podcast, trained operators at Lifeline are on 13 11 14 or you can contact the Sexual Assault Resource Centre on 1800 199 888. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow with Ali Fan and Tim Clark. You'll be with us tomorrow as well for Day 24 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy, and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont The Trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.